You're listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us at 1pc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee. I will be reading in a moment from page 888 in your pew Bibles. But first, let us bow our head and ask the Lord to illuminate his scriptures to us. O Lord, our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'm reading this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning at the 16th verse. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, yes, the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the reading of his scriptures. Some of you might be of an age you can remember Rockin' Roland Stewart, um, the guy who uh, would often wear a rainbow Afro wig and hold a John 3.16 sign at sports events and try to get where uh, he would be seen on the camera. Uh, it seemed like he was at most um, things I, I can remember seeing. You, you would look for him and, and there would be Roland Stewart. But all, it was interesting because all he had to do was hold up John 3.16 and so many people knew what the verse was, knew what the scripture reference was, and was, or at least familiar enough with the Bible that they understood that was chapter and verse in a book of the Bible, and they could go look it up. Um, 2009, there was a spike on Google of uh, people searching for John 3.16, right after the uh, college football championship um, where Tim Tebow had John 3.16 and the black under his eye. What's amazing about that is the, the, the spike of 94 million people doing a Google search to see what John 3.16 meant. 
We had gone from a time when people knew, probably could recite it, to the to a time when people didn't seem to have an understanding of, of what the reference was for, which is a shame because it is a beautiful summary of the gospel. And a summary of the gospel that a world that we're in now seems to not understand or hear or know or believe. And for those of us who are familiar with it, who've probably heard it routinely, um, it's good for us to understand it in context um, so that we understand the depths of what this verse is about and what this passage is about. If you'll remember, uh, we're in a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who was one of the leaders of, um, of the Jews in Jerusalem and, and someone who was a teacher and understood the Scriptures. And he came to a conversation at night in the darkness he comes, um, and as we read this, there's sort of an echo of the introduction of John, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not, the word there can mean comprehend or overcome. Uh, the, 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 the light doesn't grasp it, and whether that grasping is a grasp to master it or a grasp of understanding, um, John is intentionally ambiguous about but here is Nicodemus, who doesn't understand, can't master this, coming to the light in the midst of darkness and doesn't receive or comprehend or understand what Jesus is talking about when Jesus is talking about new birth, being born from above, having to have a completely new nature in Christ, uh, in Him, um, to know God. And the, the ending of that part of the conversation was that just as the, um, Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, referring to a story where people were saved from the bites of these um, serpents by looking at a bronze image of a serpent and just trusting in that image that was lifted before them, Jesus said, just as that happened, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, he's referring to him being crucified, being lifted up on a cross, that whoever looks at him is undone by the serpent's curse, the curse of sin and the curse of Satan by looking to him and living. And so we come now to verse three, chapter 3, verse 16, and, and this is an interesting thing. Is this a continuation of, of Jesus' quote, or has the narration begun, is a debated issue. There, there weren't quotation marks in the original Greek text. And so if you have a red letter edition, it might stop with the red letter or it might continue with the red letter. We're not sure. We do know it is the Word of God. And so what it says is absolutely true. So whether or not it continues with the conversation, we understand that what we're hearing is God's love for the world is referring to and explaining what it means for Jesus to be lifted on the cross, for him to be lifted up and us looking to him and living when we look to him and trust in faith. And in this passage, we hear something about the object of God's love. We hear something about the need for Jesus's coming, and we hear something about um, God's purpose in Christ being lifted up. So what is the object? The object is the world. God so loved the world. Now, when we hear that, we probably think globe, all the people in the globe, and God's creation, and that's part of it. 
Um, but for John, the word world or the word cosmos is what's translated as word isn't just the idea that it's all of creation. Um, but, it, but if we hear John and we re- read the different passages that he refers to the world, what we see is it's not simply the creation because it is the world that was made through him but did not know him in chapter 1 verse 10. We're told later in chapter 7 that the world that hates Jesus, he says it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So when, when John talks about the world, what he's talking about is this creation that is now in rebellion against God. In other words, it's not just the world, but it is the world that is in darkness, that is awaiting the light to come. And this darkness, another theme that runs throughout John, is, is both moral and a darkness of understanding, a darkness of comprehending the spiritual truths, the things we can't get without uh, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, of, of seeing the light that is in Christ. We know this world is dark. I mean, just glimpsing at the newspaper, a few minutes of watching news, we see uh, a darkness of understanding of those who just refuse to believe in a creator. And, and uh, people who are almost at each other's throats arguing over fundamentals of what is reality, of, of is there a such thing as a truth? We watch as the old evils that we thought we had outgrown have been coming back in extreme politics that we thought we had gotten rid of. These are now resurrected and we're dealing with ideas that we thought had ceased. But we see that ignorance and evil and darkness of understanding isn't gone away. Moreover, there's a moral darkness we experience. Even in our town, we see violence and shootings. We, we, we see as outbreaks of terrorism and war. We see scandals that people are called in as their greed leads them to dishonesty. It's easy for us to think of the darkness of the world, though, as being somebody else, something other than us, being something that's only the big things in the news that are very obviously and manifestly evil. But the truth is this darkness is revealed in each one of us. In people all around us. We see the darkness of of a nominal belief in God and Scripture, but when it challenges our thoughts about biblical views on sexuality or relationships or money or worship of, of forgiveness and all these things, too often we have this attitude of, are we really supposed to believe this ancient document in this modern world? Haven't we grown past those things? Haven't we progressed We hear, turn the other cheek. And the response is, well, that's a nice teaching and a nice idea. But in the real world, if you live like that, it would eat you up. And we ridiculously believe that we can define who God is going to be. I I hear this all the time of people who kind of have this attitude of, you know, I, I just can't believe in a God who would allow this or that. 
you know, and, and somehow though as faith is so subjective that what I imagine must be what there is. C.S. Lewis wrote um, early part of the 20th century, uh, it was an essay called God in the Dock. The Dock is where the defendant sits in a trial. And he says, uh, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's got a kind of, if God should have reasonable defense for being the God who permits war or poverty or disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even in God's acquittal, but the important thing is man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You see what he's saying is that, that we've turned it around, that we think we can judge God. That we could say, I can't believe in a God like that, or, you know, I would never worship a God who would allow that to happen, or, or would condemn that sort of behavior. And, and hopefully you would understand the moral, I mean, the, the rational darkness of thinking that we as creatures would be in a position to define who the Creator could be. We have moral darkness with our own hearts. The truth is, we all have a tendency to think much better of ourselves than we are. I think one of the things we enjoy about the evil on the news is it makes us feel better about ourselves. At least we're not as bad as those people, those hateful people, those greedy people, those self-centered people. I'm pretty good. And yet, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That is, it's not those people who are in darkness, but all of us are in darkness, which is why Jesus taught that if you're angry, it's as though guilty of murder. If, it's, if you're calling someone insulting names, it's, you're, you're liable to punishment. If you're lusting in your heart and looking on somebody in lust, it's as though you have committed adultery. He's not saying those are uh, the, the same source of evil is within all of us who do those things. Anger in the heart is not as evil as murder, yet it is the same source. It is the same darkness. And that darkness is in all of us. And so if that's the standard, what we do in secret, what fantasies we indulge in, our little white lies and our half-truths, the little gossip that we pass on that tears others down, our jealousies and discontents of others, the little things that we dismiss, they expose the darkness that is around us and within us. This darkness is the state of the world that God loved. That should strike us as a complete paradox. This dark world that does these things is the recipient of God's love. And it's the reason why the world needs the light that it is His Son. Let me, let me briefly say, if we understand this description of the world, that should radically change your view of the world and the things around us. You should not be surprised when a world of darkness does not act like it knows God. Uh, there, there are times the, the church just gets in an uproar because the world that is not Christian doesn't act like Christian. It should never surprise us that non-believers don't act like believers. We love our neighbors. 
but, and, and we respect the dignity of all people created in God's image, but it shouldn't surprise us that the world of darkness enjoys darkness. So, I mean, just one simple thing. Why would you ever want a non-believer to wish you Merry Christmas as you're checking out? And to make it a thing of let's try to make everybody act as though they're Christian if they're not, it should, you know, we recognize the light of the darkness. Or we should also never seek the approval of the world around us that does not know Christ. We love the world. We serve the world. But too often the church wants to seek approval from the world around it, which is a world that hates Jesus, a world that loves darkness. So in our love and our service, we, we do so seeking approval only from the light, not the darkness. Let me get back into our need. In the world of darkness, there is judgment. And the world is under God's wrath and judgment. This is what he is saying is it is already condemned. It's already facing judgment. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The world is already under condemnation because people's deeds are evil. They love darkness. Because they fear the judgment and the exposure of the light, they reject the light and flee from it, choosing darkness rather than light. Because their sinful deeds and works, they choose darkness. They choose condemnation. Verse 19, this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Darkness is judgment. Part of the judgment is being in eternal darkness. And it just makes sense. If God is light, to choose darkness is to choose to be away from God who is light. If God is life, to choose death is to choose the punishment of being away from the source of everything good and beautiful and true. And it says our works are what is judged. Our works. Um, I, I, I want to just pull this out that it's talking about our works being evil and our deeds being evil and those bringing condemnation because there's so often that we kind of think God should just judge our good intentions. God should just kind of like me for what I meant to do, not what I actually did. Um, as are our good intentions and in that maybe we're basically pretty good people he couldn't condemn a pretty good person. I could, you know, we're all basically good. We just can't help doing wrong. But he's not saying he's judging our good intentions or what we wish we were or who we were, but what we actually do. And our deeds are evil. The deeds not done in God. The deeds done in our own nature and our own selves. And so what I, what I have often or occasionally heard is, Bless his heart. I mean, he hasn't been to his church since he was six, and he's had problems with money. He can't seem to keep a job, and he keeps getting into fights, and he cussed out his mom, and he kicks puppies. But deep inside, he's a really good person. No. We do things that show what our heart is, reveals who we are. He really means to do better. He just doesn't. 
And we, we, we deceive ourselves to think that who we imagine we ought to be somehow stands in for what we really do. Our deeds of choosing darkness are worthy of judgment. And part of our darkness is convincing ourselves they're really not that bad and to refuse to admit and, re- and to cling to excuses. But in God's love, in God's love for people in darkness, in God's love for people who have rejected Him and rebelled against Him and who have run and done these things that He says deserve condemnation, in God's love for them, for us, for those of us who wasn't on the basis of our good intentions, wasn't on our saying we will do better or we want to do better, but solely because of His love for us in darkness who are incapable of doing better, who couldn't understand better in His great love, because He loved you so much, He sent His Son. He sent all He had. Sent Him to become part of this world. Sent Him to suffer and die on the cross for those who were in darkness. Not those who were really in the light and deserved it, but those who were in rebellion and darkness. And the extent of His love is in Jesus. And the way He shows His love is that He comes to rescue us from that darkness. God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We don't hear this as God doesn't really judge people, God doesn't really condemn anybody, Jesus' coming wasn't really condemnation. The point being, He doesn't have to condemn. We're already under judgment. We're already condemned. So Jesus' coming was to rescue us from that condemnation, to bring us who are under God's wrath into the light, to rescue us by raising him, being raised on the cross so that all who trust in Him, who believe in Him, that's not just believing the fact that there was a man named Jesus who died, but believing what He did really saves you from your sins. Not accept your excuses, but forgives you. For the darkest thing you can imagine that you've done, the darkest thought you would not share anyone in here, He knows it. And He still loves you. And He shows that love in going to the cross to make you His own. And here is the irony, is that we see Jesus on the cross. We see Him taking that judgment, and the way we look at Him, the way we judge that, judges us. If you dismiss it, it shows the darkness. You're still under that wrath. But if you look at Him and you place your trust in Him and not your own goodness, you are forgiven. You are in the light. So do you reject? He is on the cross. Do you see Him? Do you look at that and sort of ignore it and downplay your own guilt and your own darkness and refuse to recognize the light and continue to kind of say, well, I'm not really that bad that I really need Jesus to go to the cross for me. I mean, give me a second chance, I'll do better, but I don't really need a Savior. Or do you interpret it and say, I don't really need a Savior, I just need a helping hand and some good advice and maybe a good example in Jesus? Or do you look and say, this absolutely doesn't make any sense? So, you're in darkness. 
But those who receive, who believe in His name, He gave right to become children of God. He loved the world so much that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. And so if you look not to your own deeds, your own works, but if you look to Him on the cross who is lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, if you look to Him and you say, I have nothing in myself, but I trust in Him. I trust in what He has done for me. Brothers and sisters, you are in the light. You are assured of eternal life not because of anything you bring to that and offer and promise to do, but completely because what He has done. The light has shone in the darkness and if you recognize it and receive it, you have eternal life. And you can be absolutely assured that a God who loved you enough to go to the cross even when you were in darkness and rebellion is a God who loves you enough that everything you face, everything you deal with is in His hand and for your good and comes only from a Father who loves you. Now to Him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, be honor and glory and power forever. Amen. And you've been listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us and listen to other sermons at onepc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee.